Welcome to the Fan Engagement Pod. This episode is a chat with Gerard Lawler, Chief Executive of the Northern Ireland Football League. Gerard has been Chief Executive since 2021. Professionally, he was in the hospitality industry as a chef for years, but crucially, always a fan and latterly Director and Chairman of Cliftonville Football Club. He has a clear understanding of the needs of his member clubs, both as institutions, but also as businesses that need to satisfy fans, both as customer and a stakeholder, whilst building new loyalties amongst non-traditional fans, particularly women and girls. I just sat back and listened for large parts of this interview. He had so much interesting stuff to say about a league that is clearly undergoing a renaissance and clubs that are finding themselves more popular than they've been for a long time. You can hear how their success was supercharged by Covid and how their strength really is that they're close to their fans. I really enjoyed chatting with Gerard and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to it too. There are episode links in the podcast description. Enjoy the show. Right, Gerard, um, it's very nice to meet you. It's the first time we've actually met, apart from arranging things on email. Um, uh, I was just saying to you before we started that I'm just sort of, when when you've spent um, a lot of time working in, um, the English game or established, very established professional leagues across Europe where I've worked as well. Um, uh, and you get to talk to someone who's kind of, as I said, as, as I said, it's not, you're not starting from the bottom because your league's been going for a long time. More that, you know, you're making a purposeful, um, you're, you're purposefully aiming at something here and you're trying to create and build something. Um, it, it's a more interesting experience, more interesting conversation to have. Um, and as I said, I think it allows you to kind of see a lot more of what goes on under the bonnet um, when it comes to running a league. So just tell me, if you could, first, a little bit about your background, because I'm interested in, in where you've come from. So then also a little bit about what the aim is here in Northern Ireland. Then what's what, what's the aim with with, with football uh, in, in, in Northern Ireland and, and how and what you're doing to, to develop a strategy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No issues, Kev, and lovely to meet you. Um, and it, it, it's funny, as as you say, you know, a league in Northern Ireland. We're actually the second oldest league in the world after the F, after the the English Football League. So obviously something went wrong. They got bigger, and and we were. But um, so look, I mean, my background is a little. There's a bizarreness in it where um, I sort of left school um, and was a chef for 17 years. So I have a, um, yeah, so I, I was a did chef. You, did I hear, sorry, Joe, did I hear that correctly? You were a chef? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I was a chef for 17 years. Um, and then I went and I worked in and ran a theatre for, uh, I suppose, another 12 years after that. It's a very bizarre background. Um, now, at the same time, Kev, um, I had involvement in one of our senior clubs here in Northern Ireland, um, a club, Cliftonville, who are the oldest club in Ireland. And I was, I've was i been involved in Cliftonville, probably, or I was involved in Cliftonville 
um, for the guts of around 20 years. So why I had my professional life in catering and, and the theatre industry, I had a very strong passion in being a board member at Cliftonville. I went on to be the chairman for 12 years. Um, and I've always been involved in association football, be it through the league here at Niffle or through the Irish FA, and I was on the Irish FA board also. So the, the, the football journey went hand in hand with my professional life. And then in 2001, uh, Niffle, as we would get for short of Northern Ireland Football League, um, we're looking at chief executive. And I have to say, at the beginning, I was approached and asked, you'd be an ideal candidate. And I was like, ah, dead on. You know, I have my Cliftonville background, I have my job. And it was really through a lot of encouragement from our clubs and fairness and our other fellow senior clubs had started to talk to me about you know, you should think about that, you would be good at it. So it was the encouragement of the clubs that was very, very flattering and very patronizing. So long story short, I spoke to the recruitment company. I probably never went through a job in my life where I was as calm and cool about it and blase a little bit to go, well, sure, I am in this for the, you know, the journey. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, sure, I have did it. And then one day I got a phone call from the recruitment company to say, look, we'd like to offer you the job. And it was like time to put the big boy pants on and make some life changing decisions and stop the have, you know, this hobby that I had and all that I did and say, right, OK, are we really going to do this professionally and now make the, the risk? So that was in uh, 2001, uh, September, October 2001. Um, I started in the October of 2001, and hopefully for me, Niffle as an organisation, so say the old Irish Football League is the second oldest league in the world. It had ran up to 2004, and in 2004 in Northern Ireland, there was a governance review that highlighted at that stage, football in Northern Ireland was probably on its knees, if I'm honest with you, Kev. It's in a very bad place. We had survived the troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, large amounts of people going to England and Scotland every weekend. And the game was really heading nowhere. So there was a government review, as I say. And in 2004, that review was that the Irish FA took on the running of the league. And the old Irish Football League, that was a limited company by guarantee, came under the auspice of the National Association. And the league started to flourish and it started to build um, throughout those years of the early millenniums. And then around 2007, 2008, as we all know, there's lots of politics in football. The intermediate and junior family of the RHFA, I would say, didn't like the attention the senior football was getting. And there was a lot of politics within the game. And there was a motion passed by the Irish FAA in around 2009, I think it got to that stage, where the Irish FAA were not permitted to run leagues any longer. And they had to be an Iceland association, which meant they had to do undo the government regulation 
and there had to be a new independent company set up to run league football and the senior leagues in Northern Ireland. And while at the time, I'll say, Kevin, it was very hurtful and, you know, the senior game was not, it was the best thing that ever happened to the senior game in Northern Ireland. 2011, Niffle, as in Northern Ireland Football League, was born and branded. Um, and I have to say, it has flourished and grown. Um, we're seeing some massive key performance indicators throughout the game in Northern Ireland. Um, crowds are on the rise. Um, the professionalism of the game is really in a great place for us at the moment. You know, if we look at the British Isles, I would like to say we're obviously nowhere near the top leagues in England, but could we give the National League a run for its money? I think we could to a certain degree. Um, Scottish Championship, Scottish League One, we would believe is the standard, and um, we would probably be ahead of maybe the Welsh League in attendances. We, you know, we have a small population in Northern Ireland of 1.9 million people. Um, so Niffle was created, and what is so? What is Niffle? So Niffle at the moment is the three senior leagues in the pyramid of men's football in Northern Ireland, in in the Premier Division, the Championship, and the Premier Intermediate League. And we also are the senior league now for the Ladies League in ladies football. We have under-18s and under-16s as well for some of the men's and ladies games. And all in, we have 11 leagues that we run uh, professionally and some, um, some with amateurs in the boys' game. So we are a, we're a complete cocktail of the men's senior professional game some intermediate meals, boys and junior football, and then the ladies senior league in Northern Ireland also. So it is really, I don't think anyone had ever seen where it was going to go or there was really a vision or a strategy. There was these bolt-ons that kept being created to it. Um, and where do we sit today? We, we, we sit today, which I believe we're in a really, really good place at this moment in time. Um, Believe it or not, one of the good things that happened to us in the game, COVID was very good to us. So, and I'll explain to you why, in a way that pre-COVID, while the game is increasing, we still had vast amounts of people, and a lot of bar stool supporters, as I often call them, who sat in the local pub and criticised the club that played down the road and had an opinion on them while they watched Liverpool, Manchester United and Real Madrid and the likes on a television screen. And then with COVID, because of we weren't out, the league got, we, we got a new television deal with the BBC. So the league got an awful lot more exposure. And a lot of these people who would not have entertained the local league previously started watching it. And they were like, hey, that's okay. That, that's watchable. That's not bad. And then what happened on when travel had sort of started to open up again, or sorry, we were allowed out after COVID, before travel, some of those people started attending local games. So they watched it in television. Then they started attending games. So we got a great upsurge in attendances throughout that period. And thankfully that has grown. It has developed. It has really given us a platform for the product. And as I say, we sit today where 
the average attendance so far this season across the Premier League is around 1,800 people per game. Now, if we're comparing that with Wales, the highest attended game so far in, in the country, so to give you some of the, the diversity of where we are, the highest attended game in the country this season has been 7,500. So we would get that crowd, and then that could go to a crowd, and I think the lowest has been around 1,000. So there, there, there's large peaks and troughs. Mm-hmm. Um, our League Cup final um, last year was our highest attended League Cup final in, in history, where we had just over 11,000 people at that. We play it this year on the 12th of March. So the target is, is to get over 12,000 and grow the product. So we're in a really happy, we have a, a real competitive league. I mean, when talking to you today, our our yeah. our top six there and there's games to be played. There's only seven points between the top six in the league, and the seventh play the sixth place team who are seven points down have two games in hand. So realistically, it's only four or five points between the leagues. So very competitive league. We think it's very modern, and we have seen lately in the league, Kevin, as we've transpired, there's investors coming into the league. Some of our clubs now have had a lot of our our clubs in the past. They would have all been fan-owned and a very rich history of being owned by fans and members and the local community. And that's something that we always have to keep at the paramount importance of, of where we are. But obviously money talks and football talks. And so we have seen in the last number of years, a couple of clubs have been bought out by investors, two in particular. And that has given the game a, a total different era of professionalism. So out of the 12 Premier League clubs at this stage, we have four, which would be classed as full-time professional clubs. And then the other eight are going through a journey of being still registered semi-professional, in some cases paying full-time wages probably, and doing a full-time training schedule, but not classing themselves. So we have an objective in the next five years um, of a minimum that could probably take us five to ten to have a hybrid system where we would like to see almost a full-time development league that, that is going through those the, that journey. So we're on a trajectory, as I keep saying, and in a really good place. So it's... So it's um... So, so, so really, a lot of it up to now then has kind of been what you might call organic. It's been sort of stand, not stand back, but because because obviously you don't, you have to administrate and there are decisions have to be made. It's not like, you know, this is it takes a lot of organisation to run a league, but it appears to me that quite a lot of what has gone on here has been um, that the clubs have developed as entities themselves and. Then you've got the accident, if you like, of COVID, yeah, which then creates more of a compulsion for people to go. You've and you've also got, I mean, you've also got that that ends up presumably that challenge that you've always had that they have in the Republic as well of people. You know, when I used to work over there, you always used to see fans flying over for matches, and I'd sure. be saying to them down there, saying, "You've got a brilliant." Um, environment here great clubs 
these are the people you need to you need to capture some of these people, even if they carry on supporting those other sides. So a lot of it then is just looking at what you've got and realizing actually, look, this isn't so bad, you know. Mm-hmm. This isn't and not and I'm presuming as well, although you did draw that comparison, it sounds like a very good one with the um with the National League in terms of size. I, that sounds about right in terms yeah. of your attendances, etc. You are yeah. something distinct on your own, right? And and there's a degree of sort of pride. You've got to have some pride, haven't you? And people, fans yeah. pick up on that, don't they? They don't. I think people feel attracted to something that's confident, not brash, not not excessively showy, but confident. So tell me something then, when it comes to the way in which, because you talked about the investor money, mm-hmm. um, in some in some uh, at some clubs, is. Is, is are you sort of sensitive to the way that growth happens? Because let's be honest, sometimes investors get very impatient, and they might want something much quicker than than the club can can cope with it, and and that can cause problems. I've seen that. That's part of what made my work possible for many years when I was helping to clear up. Um, we're know. very lucky. Am I concerned? No, I'm not. Is the good answer, Kevin? I think the two investors mainly that we have in two other clubs are they're passionate about the clubs. They're not investor groups. They're maybe individual, they're individual owners. Um, and two, the two clubs that we have is, is Lauren and Glen Torren. Um, Glen Torren would have always been one of our leading clubs in Northern Ireland. Um, so they would have, so if it's picking that product up, making it full time, and putting a strategy and plan in place. Um, and so that has happened there. And as I say, I think the owner is very committed to the club. Um, and like, there's none of these people going to get money back out of clubs in Northern Ireland at this stage of the journey. The other club that we have is a fascinating story in a club called Larn. Larn actually would have been one of our, our first division clubs. And the owner that gone in there has to say has done a fantastic job because they've really built the foundation around the club. And I think if there's a model of how you build a club, they they, they did that. And his vision was bringing the right people into a structure, developing the ground, developing a fan base, having the fan base as part of the club. And then they almost put the team at the end of it, where I think so many people will go in, spend money on footballers, and it doesn't work. And we've basically built a house in sand. So they have really, I have to think, did a strategy and did it such the right way to say, let's create a really strong foundation and continue on. Um, and they're both seeing the rewards of, of that work. Um, Lauren are, are, are up there at the moment, but with a really strong community focus supporter base with great training facilities and totally you know a really good stadium now that looks the park and have all put all those things in place and say Glen Torren would have had a very good team they've strengthened the team but what it has also did Kim it has made other clubs stand up to the challenge because this was a challenge to other clubs and maybe where clubs were you know happy let's say to be in the league or finish second third or you know always going to qualify for europe it has opened up that where we now have at the moment we do have a top six and the bottom six 
which I have to try and readdress. But rather, maybe we had a top four previously who were going to Europe every year and were comfortably uh, qualifying for European competitions. Two of those teams are now missing out every year. So we almost have a top six that have really had to step up. So it hasn't been a threat at this stage to the league. And I think that has been, we've been lucky to get the right people investing in those clubs. But it has really made the league competitive and raised the standards across the whole top six clubs and made clubs, clubs like, I mean, Linfield is an example who would have been the most, I think they're most successful, one of the most successful clubs in the UK and in the world who were winning titles year on year. They didn't really have to go to second or third year sometimes. Where now they had to re, they had to be challenged and they had to rethink and they had to go full time and they had to re, be reinvitalized. So for us, the investors and the development of those two individual clubs has raised the bar across the league and has been fantastic. So um, just in terms of in terms of sort of fandom, um, you know, fans, um, I know that from from my 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 research on this is there's not a lot of organized fandom um, mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland. So one of the things that you know the question that that begs it begs to be asked then is is so how you know because organized fandom is often one of the ways you communicate, right? Yeah. Um, and um, you know that can be a great way of getting you know other fans involved. Um, you know whatever level it might be decision making, it might just be volunteering depending on the size of the club it could it could be other things so what do you do as a league and what do clubs do in terms of trying to communicate with fans understand them because you do you you sound like you've got you've got some sensitivity there but there are owners there are there are owners and investors people who are interested in the game in northern ireland who who are sensitive to these things but we know that you know the the the, the thing that could often happen is those things can get lost yeah, you know, because you know maybe development suddenly speeds up, something happens, and that those things aren't captured. Um, how you know how do you ensure that you're incorporating some of that good practice with you know how do you listen to fans out there? How do you you know do, do you do you do a lot of sort of fairly standard surveying? Do, do clubs do clubs have forums? Do they you know what sort of thing goes yeah. on over there? Um, so and, I mean, and, and you and yourself as a league, because obviously to inform your strategy? Funny, we're in the stages um, in the next month or so that we're actually going to have a fans forum within the league. And I think it's important that we as a league are having conversations with supporters at the same time as their clubs. So on the basis of some of our clubs, they'll all have fans forums. Some of the fa- some of the clubs are still members' own clubs and they'll be ran by the, you know, the club that I came from, Cliftonville are still owned by the members. There's a membership and they run the club. Excuse me, that's fantastic. And it's great that we do have that fandom. But then clubs need investment and clubs need to grow and develop. And so there's there'll be different models of it. There'll be that model of the clubs being owned by the fans and having those discussions. I know in some of the other clubs where they have the owners, There'll be a lot of supporters' representatives on a board, or there, you know, I think most of our clubs will all have a supporters' representative on the board, or a supporters' liaison officer at every club. So there, all of our clubs, I would say, very confidently have a flow of information through the club 
to the very top. And that's not that's not hard to do. So I would say we do that very well informally, but also see the challenge where we now, and I think there's an onus on us as a league where we need to do it formally and we need to formalize and support some of these. So hence, I've been talking to our marketing team here in the league to say we need to we need to be talking to supporters more. We need to take people out of the confines of their clubs. Um, because the one thing that comes to me, and I know we don't like talking about supporters, and I don't like talking about supporters as customers, but in a way, you know, when we take it back, when I had my previous job managing the Opera House, it's the entertainment business that we're in, Kevin. And if we're to grow this league for other people who have a passion for football, but they want to also be entertained, and especially I think the younger generation now, they just don't want to go watch a football match for 90 minutes and watch the game and go home. It has to be a whole match day experience. And, and I know it's the other extreme, but I had the pleasure of being at the Etihad a few weeks ago for an FA Cup game. And I think Manchester City do it fantastically well where, you know, you arrive at the stadium, there's a Q&A on the stage, there's a band playing. So I think it's a day out as opposed to just being, let's go and do 90 minutes of football. So, we have to develop in Northern Ireland that entertainment value around the game. I mean, we have we have ice hockey, believe it or not, that's quite successful in Northern Ireland. We, we've won team, the Belfast Giants, and they're selling out most games. I'd say most of the people that go aren't ice hockey addicts or, or know a lot about it, but they're there for that experience. And I think in football, we have a lot to learn about other sports. They were just not turning up at 10 to 3 or 10 minutes before kickoff and leaving at the final whistle. No, that's and good. I, yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah, right, sorry. And I think, Kevin, that also creates a family environment and it takes, you know, we all have some issues in football still and there's chance and, and behaviours that we, you know, got out of the game and we all work at all levels of the game to, to eliminate these. And I think that helps to make the games family-orientated Um we have massive growth in the ladies' game in Northern Ireland and ladies attend in male football, which is, is a, a massive. So for us to go to the next level and to grow, it's really all about fan engagement and creating that environment more than just a football match, but a family environment and a female market. Um, we have changed the age profile. The age profile of the league is gradually going down. The, you know, being honest, 15, 20 years ago, it was middle-aged men who went to football here with pig caps on a Saturday afternoon. You know, it's fantastic to look around our grounds and see the female influences of being supporters, of, of going to games, of young families going to games. And that is all really in growth within the league, which is good for us. So, so yeah, you preempted what I was going to ask anyway, which is about learning from other sports, learning other... I am, I am aware of the Belfast Giants. Um, and that it's a very popular, a popular sport over there. So, so you are, you are looking, I mean, I, I might, I might suggest that possibly it's getting to the point where you could end up teaching some other people about how to do this by the sounds of it. How much, how much of this is sort of, in some senses, is this, is this, that although you're separate, um, is this all part of the sort of, um, I wouldn't say rebirth, but, you know, there's been a bit of a renaissance in, um, in Northern Ireland internationally as well. Is that helping you too? Is that assisting? Because people are 
I, I might get, I'm given to believe, I might have this wrong, you know, that traditionally, of course, you've, you've often relied on players in the English and Scottish leagues for your internationals, and you've actually produced some players domestically who, who are playing in the international side. The, these things are all kind of feeding off each other. Is that is that is that a, a, a correct? That's a, yeah, that that's a very good assumption, Kevin. I mean, in the past in Northern Ireland, we would have produced our, our, our players, and you know, we think players like Pat Jennings, Mal Donaghy, and um, Norman Whiteside. You know, those all Northern Ireland talent that went and played in Division One in England, or as it was then, or Premier League. Because the international market has moved has moved so much, and and you know, like let's be honest, 20, 30 years ago, there was no players coming in from the Afri- Africas or the continents, where the, the Premier League for a period there pre-Brexit was saturated. And I think the English game suffered from it, and the Scottish game would have suffered also. So what we're finding now is, and we realized there wasn't as much opportunities for young people to go across the water. Or if they were going to the UK, if they were going to England, they were coming back home again very quickly because they weren't making it in the top level game. So they a lot of those players have now integrated into our league. Um, and and you know, we have a number of players who played Irish League football still, you know, Stuart Dallas, who's inter, you know, was injured at, and is out injured at, at uh, Leeds at the moment, has probably been a big loss to the club. So I think the club. The whole structure of football, to come back a little bit, you know, obviously we have a troubled past in Northern Ireland. The football was always a victim of, and I believe victim, football was a victim of sectarianism and of society. But the football family throughout all those troubles, the togetherness within the football people in Northern Ireland and the clubs, it was always so refreshing and, and camaraderie that everyone worked together through that. So the country changing in Northern Ireland, getting to the Euros obviously made it more fashionable. And again, probably brought some people to take attention to football, then backed with players not all going to to England and some players coming back from England or playing in this league. You know, I mean, Glenn Torn is an example, St. Now McGinn, who's former international not too long ago, who of Celtic and Aberdeen, um, we're seeing a much better quality of player playing in the league. Probably, I remember being at a meeting about 15 years ago and someone from the Irish EFA, was the chief executive, and I've reminded him of this, and he says, oh, we're a league everyone wants out of. So every player wanted to go and play somewhere in another league. And I remember getting it at the time going, you know, what's that about? You know, our league's great. We love it. We're proud of it. But he was completely right. We're now we're seeing people from the Republic, from Scotland, from Wales, and players from wanting to come and make a career in Northern Ireland in full-time professional football. And so we've done a full, full circle. And obviously that has made the product better. It's more entertaining. And the clubs are really reaping the rewards and benefits of it. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Fun Engagement Pod. Don't forget, episode links are available in the podcast description. Keep an eye out on fanengagement.net for the latest news. Find our socials on Linktree at linktr.ee forward slash think fanengagement. 
Uh, and you can register on the fanengagement.net website for free to get access to the Fan Engagement Hub with more detailed data and case studies from all the Fan Engagement Indexes. Don't forget the new Fan Engagement Index is coming out very soon. And please like, subscribe and share to this podcast. It really does help our visibility in a crowded podcast world. Yeah.